Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. Good to be back. Florida was awful. (laughs) Horrible. So we come in our study of Matthew this morning to chapter 16. And we will consider this morning verses 1 through 12. This is Matthew 16, 1 through 12. This is the word of God. Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came and testing him asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said to them, When it is evening, you will say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. Now when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, O you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the five thousand and how many baskets you took up, nor the seven loaves of the four thousand and how many large baskets you took up? How is it you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Our God and Father, we pray that now by the Spirit you would bring this word that you have given and preserved for all time for your people, that you would bring it to us by that selfsame Spirit uh, that we can understand, that you'd lift us up and encourage us and convict us and make us strong, full of joy and fruit to the praise of your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope you notice that even though we've moved now from chapter 15 into a new chapter, that there's a theme which connects this passage with what was happening in chapter 15. And that's the theme we saw throughout that passage, and that is the theme of food. The theme of food keeps coming up. So this is one of these unfortunate chapter breaks that suggests to our minds that the topic has changed, but it really hasn't. Is this ongoing theme of food. And you remember that in chapter 15, we saw that food uh, was like a symbol or a representative of the power and the love of God. Recall Jesus' conversation with the woman of Canaan, who came to him seeking to have him heal her demon-possessed daughter, and came to him confessing him, as the son of David, the Messiah of Israel, king of the world, 
confessing Him as God, worshiping Him. Remember that in their conversation, they use food as a metaphor for the power of God and the love of God coming into the world through Christ and being shown powerfully in people's lives. Jesus says, it's not good to take the food from the children and to give it to the little dogs. And the woman says, yes, but even the little dogs get to eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And what they're talking about is Jesus showing the power and the love of God in this Gentile woman's life. Okay, so that's the way food has been throughout this passage. And so here, it's the same thing. Jesus reminds his disciples here, who are kind of clueless in this passage, um, which we kind of laugh at, but we have to remember their cluelessness means that they're a lot like us, or we're a lot like them. You know, Jesus doesn't say they're unbelievers. He says they have little faith. They, they've, there's a lot of things they fail to grasp. And, and you realize when you look at that, if you, as you learn about Bible imagery, we're often analogized to sheep. And if you talk to anybody who's ever owned sheep or had sheep, you realize that that's not all a compliment to be like sheep. Um, so anyway, the, the disciples are kind of clueless. And Jesus has to remind them what the real issue is talking about. He's not literally talking about food here. He's talking about other things. He has to remind them that He is the one who has brought the power and the love of God tangibly into the world, incarnationally as God Himself into the world in such a way that the redemption of God is going to be shown forth. And He brings that power into people's lives. And He's demonstrated that before their very eyes. They're the ones that that he handed the bread to and the fish to as he was feeding the 5,000 and feeding the 4,000. They're the ones who took all of this food multiplied out of a few loaves and a few little fish out to these throngs of people. They're the very ones who took up baskets full that were more than the food that they started with. They're the ones. And so Jesus reminds them that He is the one who brings the power and love of God into the world. But what Jesus is concerned with here in this passage is that there is something that can undercut the food that Jesus brings. There's something that can undercut the power and love of God that He brings and offers. And that is what He calls the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, leaven, again, is a kind of food. It's not, well, oftentimes people will call it yeast. It's not really yeast, but it kind of acts like yeast. Um, you can make leavened bread now. It's, a, it's, a, uh, it's bacteria working within bread and so forth that brings it to life. It makes it rise. It makes it tasty and all of these kind of things. And, of course, you can't put just a little bit of leaven in a recipe and have it just stay in place. It's not like a pecan or a chocolate chip. You know, it's going to spread. It's going to go throughout the whole thing. And that's what Jesus is saying. There is a leaven from the Pharisees and Sadducees that undercuts this food, the power and love of God that Jesus brings. Now, Jesus is not saying that the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees leavens the food itself that Jesus brings. They don't limit 
or stop the power of God or the love of God in Christ. His power, His love does not depend upon their support. It doesn't. But what their leaven does do is it changes people. It doesn't go into what Jesus is bringing. It goes into people. And it changes them. It inoculates them. And it sours them so that they refuse to receive the love and power of God that is set before them and offered to them in Christ. So what is this thing that sours people against Christ? Well, Jesus, it says it is the doctrine or it is the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. It sours people. It inoculates them from Christ. So, that's an unusual thing for Jesus to say because he speaks of their teaching or their doctrine as though it were the same thing. When actually the Pharisees and Sadducees were two very different groups with two, it would appear, polar opposite sets of teaching. So let's talk for just a minute about who they were. The Sadducees were the party of the high priests. Okay, so they were the, like the elite ruling party of Israel. They were not the majority party of Israel, but they were the party of the high priests. They were very political. They were in with Rome. Uh, they wanted to maintain their positions and their power. They wanted to maintain the status quo. They wanted to maintain their inness with Rome. Uh, so they're very political. They're very savvy. They're theologically liberal, even you would say secular. As it points out in Acts 23, verse 8, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in any life after death. They did not believe in any angels. And they, and they mocked those who did believe in the resurrection. At one point in the Gospels, they come to Jesus trying to make his belief in the resurrection look ridiculous. And, of course, Jesus, as he often did, ended up making them look ridiculous. So, to kind of look in more at modern times, the Sadducees were really like deists, okay? They, they affirmed the law of God, the moral principles of the law of God, kind of like deists do, or the concept of God being there. But in any kind of supernatural or real engagement with God or personal relationship with God, life after death, all of that kind of stuff, they denied. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were the majority party in terms of uh, holding the minds and hearts of most of the people. And they were the religious conservatives of the day, the majority party of the religious conservatives. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in the supernatural God coming into the world. They believed in life after death. They believed in angels. So they were really kind of like the evangelicals of the day. So the Pharisees were like the evangelicals of the day, and the Sadducees are like the political elites who are secularists, kind of like uh, deists of the day. So the bottom line is that even after Paul's conversion, when he is placed on trial in Acts chapter 23, this is after his conversion to Christ, Paul can still say to the tribunal, I am a Pharisee, not I was, I am. He says, I am a Pharisee. There is a way in which he can identify with the Pharisees. 
in the same way which we would identify with evangelicals today. And he says, concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. Okay, and then there was a meltdown of the tribunal, the Sanhedrin, the ruling body, because then the Sadducees and the Pharisees turned on one another over the issues of uh, the resurrection, and that's exactly what Paul wanted to see happen. So there was a way in which, if, if we lived back in that day, we would be Pharisees. We would be of the party. Now, Pharisees take a lot of lambasting from Jesus, but it's not because they were altogether heading down the wrong road like the Sadducees were, okay? The reason why Jesus has to spend more time on the Pharisees is they were closer to being right while still being really wrong, okay? So, in other words, the hook was baited a lot more deftly in the case of the Pharisees, and Jesus had to take them on. There were good Pharisees. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, okay? If we were in that day, uh, we would be... Pharisees. Okay. So, given the fact that these two groups are really polar opposites, it seems strange that Jesus would refer to the leaven singular and the doctrine singular of the Pharisees and Sadducees as though they were one, when in fact they were really polar opposites theologically. And we have to ask the question, was there something that these two apparently opposite groups shared in common? Well, the most obvious thing that connected them was their opposition to Jesus. You got one party's conservatives, you got one party's liberals, you got one party that believes in the supernatural and the resurrection, the other party is secularist and don't believe any of that, and yet we see them coming together. They're enemies, but we see them coming together in their opposition to Jesus. And they will continue to work together in this regard until they get him condemned and crucified. So that's the most obvious thing. The other thing that connects them, which Jesus points out in our passage, is the effect of their teaching. And the effect of their teaching, as I've already said, was to inoculate people against the gospel or to sour people against Jesus so that they refuse to enter into the kingdom. They refuse to respond in faith to the gospel Jesus is preaching. They refuse to respond in faith to um, Jesus. At one point, Jesus will say, you will neither enter in yourself, nor do you let others pass. It's like they're blocking the door. They're standing in front of the door. They won't go in, and they won't let other people in either. So, this is why Jesus says, beware of their leaven. So the specifics of their teaching were very different, but the effect of their teaching was the same. It was anti-Jesus. Okay. So the Pharisees and Sadducees, we can see, were joined in their unbelief. Okay. Unbelief in Jesus, their hardness of heart, and their opposition to Jesus, which is what we see at the beginning of our text. The hardness here manifests itself in trying to test Jesus, coming to Him with a joint delegation, asking to see a sign from heaven. So they pretend to be honest truth seekers. We just are trying to find the truth, Jesus. We just want to know the truth, Jesus. And so, you know, there's false prophets and stuff like that. And we just want to know if you're the one and we need to see a sign 
from heaven. But Jesus calls them hypocrites in verse 3, because he knows that they have seen more than enough signs from him. Recently, back in chapter 9, they saw Jesus heal a man who was mute and demon-possessed, and their response to that sign, which they could not deny, so their response to that was not to accuse Jesus of being a fake, because they couldn't do that. They couldn't deny it. Their response was to accuse Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan. Now, that's hardness of heart. That's somebody whose problem is not a lack of evidence or a lack of information, but a hardness against the truth. So Jesus here calls them, calls them wicked and adulterous. Now, he refers to a wicked and adulterous generation, but these groups were the leaders of this wicked and adulterous generation. In other words, the heart of the Pharisees and the Sadducees here is the heart that causes God's people of any generation to depart from Him and to turn away from Him. That's the heart they're mess, uh, that they're manifesting. So Jesus calls them wicked and adulterous. Now, our passage here is very similar to, and it's parallel to the passage back in Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 and 39. Now, this is what happens there, if you remember. Some of the scribes and Pharisees came to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want to seek a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So this confrontation without the Sadducees' involvement has already occurred. And Jesus has already pretty much said the exact same thing to them. And now it's happening with the ruling party, the Sadducees, being involved. And Jesus says the same thing. So what does the sign of Jonah mean? Well, it means several things, only one of which we typically pick up on. The sign of Jonah, of course, means Jesus' resurrection. And as he says in chapter 12, he says, As Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and nights in the belly of the earth. Okay, so it speaks of the resurrection, and we get that part because Jesus spells it out. But the sign of Jonah means a lot more than that. It also means two things, the gospel to the Gentiles and judgment on Israel. The gospel to the Gentiles and judgment on Israel. Now, this is what was going on in the book of Jonah. Jonah understood these things, which is why he was running from God. You remember the book opens with God telling Jonah to go preach to Nineveh. Well, Nineveh was one of the largest cities in the world at that time, and it was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. Okay? And so Jonah understood that Nineveh, representing the Assyrian Empire, which was a growing and increasingly powerful uh, politically, economically, and militarily power in the region that was threatening Israel. Okay. And Jonah knew that God was merciful. And Jonah feared that if he went to preach to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, that God was going to grant repentance to these Gentiles. And that's not what Jonah wanted. 
that that was going to result in judgment on Israel. That was going to result in Israel diminishing nationally and this growing a power of Assyria ascending. That's not what Jonah wanted. And so Jonah let his nationalism get the better of him. He wanted God to bless Israel and to judge Assyria regardless of their faith and faithfulness toward God. In other words, Jonah had a little bit of that my country right or wrong in him. And of course, with Israel, he could say, well, God, these are your people. Yeah, but God's people are being unfaithful to him. Jonah knows the ways of God. He knows the mercy of God. He sees it coming. God is going to grant repentance to the Assyrians. He's going to take his judgment away from them. He's going to bring his judgment on Israel. Okay, well, the thing is, is that when, uh, of course, Nineveh repents, exactly like Jonah feared, uh, the Nineveh, the whole city repents and turns to God. And so what could have happened and what should have happened is that Israel would have seen that, would have seen the mercy and the power and the love of God coming to all these undeserving Gentiles who have no background at all with the true of living God. That should have convicted them. That should have provoked them to the right kind of jealousy and go, you know, we're missing out and we need to turn to God. That's what could have happened. That's what should have happened. But that's not what happened. Israel hardened themselves, you know, they hardened themselves against God. And then what ends up happening over time is that the Assyrian Empire comes and begins to put Israel under its power. First it does that politically, but ultimately it will come to uh, Israel and overthrow Israel militarily. And you'll have the northern kingdom of Israel being taken off in captivity and scattered throughout the Assyrian Empire. Okay? So, that's what Jesus is alluding to in verse 3 when he says to the Pharisees and Sadducees, you know, you know how to discern the face of the sky. You know, it's like that old uh, little sailor saying, red sky at night, sailors delight, red sky at morn, sailors take warn. You know, red sky in the morning means storms are coming, red sky at night means it's going to be peaceful. That's what Jesus is alluding to. He says, you know how to discern the weather, but you can't discern the signs of the times. He's not just talking about his resurrection. Nineveh condemned Israel back in the 8th century B.C. because Nineveh, unlike Israel, repented. And now the greater Jonah is here. Jesus is here. And Jesus says that Nineveh is going to condemn Israel once again. And we're going to see this played out in part in the book of Acts. We will see, like Nineveh, many Gentiles responding to the gospel and coming to faith in Christ. And again, what could have happened and what should have happened at that point is that Israel being convicted all the more and turning in mass to Christ. But instead... Like in the 8th century B.C., most of Israel and certainly most of the leadership will harden themselves against Christ and the gospel, and they're going to come under judgment when Jerusalem is destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D., just like ancient Israel was conquered by the Assyrians. 
So this is what Jesus is alluding to. And so you can see his reference to the sign of the prophet Jonah was a lot more incendiary than him simply saying, I'm going to die and be raised from the dead. Now that's, that's a shockwave. But the political incendiary part of this comes with the broader context of Jonah, which these leaders would have understood very well. It means the gospel going to the Gentiles and judgment coming on unfaithful Israel. So, let's take these words now and apply them to our own day. It does us no good if we simply understand what was going on 2,000 years ago. We need to understand that, but that's all so that we can apply it to ourselves, being Jesus' disciples here in the 21st century. And I think here we need to look more closely and more deeply at what connected the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We've seen they were connected more on the surface, opposition to Jesus, hardness to what God was doing through Jesus, and the effect of their teaching and their influence being to inoculate and sour people against Jesus. But we need to look different, to, deeper to see if we find evidence of what produced that. What produced this opposition? What caused these enemies to join forces in their opposition to Christ? So that we can seek to have a different heart in our own day. Well, when we look carefully, I want to submit to you that there are five deeper characteristics that the Pharisees and the Sadducees shared. And that these are the things that we need to really watch in our own lives. The first characteristic that connected the Pharisees and Sadducees at a deeper level is that they sought glory from men above glory from God. They sought glory from men, from one another and their peers, above glory from God. In John chapter 5, Jesus says to them, How can you believe? How can you believe in me? When you receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God. This attitude of seeking honor from peers, from men, from others, above the honor and the approval and the glory that comes from God is antithetical to faith. That's why Jesus says, well, no wonder you can't believe. No wonder you don't believe. Because you seek glory from one another and not the glory that comes from the only God. Now, Jesus is not saying that we should have no concern for what others think. I mean, that's an important point. Jesus is not saying that we should have no concern for what others think of us. C.S. Lewis pointed out that a person who truly cares absolutely nothing for what anyone thinks of them is a monster. That is a supreme egotist. That is a supreme narcissist. Having proper care for what others think of us is a function of the second great commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. How can you love your neighbor as yourself and have no thought for what your neighbor thinks of you and thinks of your conduct. 
What Jesus is condemning here is the idolatrous status that glory from men had assumed in the Pharisees' and Sadducees' hearts. The real problem is that they do not seek the glory that comes from the only God, that that is not paramount with them. When the desire for God's approval and God's commendation are supreme, that puts care for what others think in its proper place. Okay? That makes care for what others think become a tool of love, a facet of love and of personal sanctification. And it keeps it from becoming an idol to which we bow. It's said that Ronald Reagan had a plaque on his desk in the Oval Office that said, There is no limit to what a man can achieve if he doesn't care who gets the credit. There is no limit to what a man can achieve if he doesn't care who gets the credit. Well, what we see with the Pharisees and Sadducees is the complete opposite of that plaque. They cared first and foremost who gets the credit, and they cared first and foremost that they get the credit, that they get the glory. Okay? And that is idolatry. It's that kind of regard and seeking of the glory from others that causes it to say in Proverbs that the fear of man is a snare. Okay? There's a difference between a loving concern for how others think of you, okay? There's a difference between that and an idolatrous seeking for glory from others, basing everything on that, and the fear, a morbid fear of that. That is idolatry, and that seems to have been at the root of the problem of the Pharisees and Sadducees, and that's something they shared together at the deepest level. Now, the second characteristic that the Pharisees and Sadducees shared at a deeper level flows from the first one, okay? The second characteristic is rivalry and envy. If you've made an idol out of receiving glory from others, it's going to cause you to see yourself constantly in competition with other people. Competition for attention, competition for glory, competition for acclaim, competition for getting the credit. And rivalry, that kind of competition of always looking out side to side and not primarily looking up and having the, the vertical relationship with God govern the horizontal relationship. When you take away the vertical, the horizontal will always become a situation of rivalry. For you to go up means for me to go down. And for me to go up, you got to go down. Okay, that's the way it comes out. Rivalry always leads to what the Bible calls envy. And envy in the Bible doesn't mean, oh, I wish I could be like you because I admire you so much. Envy in the Bible means I hate your guts. I resent you. I want you to see you, you know, if not dead, I want to see you demolished. You know, that's it, that kind of animosity uh, that's based on rivalry. That's what envy is in the Bible. So rivalry and envy are always going to come from a heart that makes glory and acclaim from others 
other men an idol. Okay. Matthew and Mark, both Gospels, Matthew and Mark, both record that Pilate, being a master of rivalry and envy and how that drives things in the world. In fact, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes that what makes the world, what makes the fallen world go round is one neighbor looking at what his other neighbor has. (laughs) Neighbor got a new boat. Neighbor got a new house. Neighbor got a new car. Neighbor got a new job. Neighbor got a new raise. Neighbor got new acclaim. And, and the rivalry there, that's what, Prover- that's what uh, Solomon says drives the fallen world. So Matthew and Mark both record that Pilate discerned that it was because of envy that the chief priests and the elders, that's the Sadducees and the Pharisees, handed Jesus over for crucifixion. Okay, They see Jesus going up, they see them going down, and they don't like it. When Jesus appeared as the Messiah and he's drawing throngs to himself, instead of them seeing that God is finally fulfilling all of the ancient promises, instead of being elated that all these crowds are going to Jesus and joining in with the crowds, they become envious and they oppose Jesus because he is upstaging them. They enjoy their status as the leaders, the religious leaders of Israel. And Jesus is upstaging them, and they're not getting the attention and the glory. Now, if you want to look at what the proper attitude looks like, somebody who's not primarily seeking the glory of others, but primarily seeking the glory from God, look at John the Baptist. What did John the Baptist say when his own disciples came to him and said, you know, here's a guy who God has been, he's filled him with the spirit in his mother's womb. He's going to be, have the spirit and power of Elijah. All of those miracles Elijah worked is going to be put into the preaching of John the Baptist. This guy was a powerful preacher. And all these throngs are going out to him. Well, when Jesus comes on the scene, when John identifies him as the Messiah, his disciples come to him and say, Teacher, Master, everybody's going to Jesus now. Jesus is upstaging you. John says this, He must increase and I must decrease. There's no limit to how much good a man can achieve if he doesn't care who gets the credit. Not only did John care that he not get the credit, he cared that Jesus get the credit. He who comes from above is above all. That's what John said. So you see there the two different hearts. One is the heart of a disciple that is going to come to Jesus and draw other people to Jesus. The other is the heart of the Pharisees and Sadducees that resents Jesus and wants to keep people away. The third characteristic that connects the Pharisees and Sadducees at a deeper level is hypocrisy and self-deception. And these two things go together. Hypocrisy and self-deception. Now Jesus says in Matthew 23 that the spirit of the scribes and the Pharisees, and by extension the Sadducees, was the same spirit 
that had martyred the prophets of old. And he said that they compounded their sin through the hypocrisy of adorning the prophets' tombs. Now, this is important because the Pharisees, Sadducees, particularly the Pharisees, they believed that they were of the Spirit, that they were the legacy and the inheritors of the Spirit of the prophets and those who supported the prophets. That's why they're out there adorning their tombs. But the truth is, they're really of the spirit of those who killed the prophets. That's what Jesus says. You have the same spirit as those who killed the prophets of old. That's true not only of the secularist Sadducees, it is also true of the evangelical Pharisees. And that ought to scare us. That ought to scare us. They have the right doctrines, but they have the spirit that killed the prophets of old. And, and true enough, in this case, it's going to deliver Jesus up for persecution. So this self-deception goes right along with the hypocrisy. The fourth characteristic that connects these two groups at a deeper level is a lack of humility and other fruit of the Spirit. A lack of humility and other fruit of the Spirit. In Matthew 21, Jesus says the chief priests, that's the Sadducees, and the Pharisees were like wicked vine dressers who failed to render God the fruit from His vineyard and instead killed His servants and finally killed His Son. And so Jesus says that the kingdom would be taken away from them and given to a nation bearing its fruit. And of course, the nation to which this is given is not a single ethnic nation. It's a nation comprised of all peoples, races, tongues. Jesus said that they're either going to fall on him as the stone and be broken. That's humility. They're, Jesus is the rock. They're either going to fall on him and be broken. Or the stone is going to fall on them and crush them. Everyone will be broken. Everyone will be broken. There's a brokenness of humility and there's a brokenness of pride. The brokenness of humility is coming to Christ. You fall on that rock. You're broken. You submit yourself to Him. You submit yourself to His Word. You become His disciple. The other brokenness comes from a hardness that refuses to be broken on Christ. And then you end up being crushed. In judgment. Now, this lack of humility showed up in the way that they dealt with God's Word. They played games with God's Word rather than humbling themselves under God's Word. Now, the Sadducees just basically denied whole parts of God's Word, they're just way out there. The Pharisees, though, affirmed the essential uh, uh, teachings and doctrines of God's Word. Okay, so Jesus would tell his disciples, the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. In other words, the Pharisees are the legacy uh, of, of Moses. They do teach in broad strokes a true view of God and of his word and so forth. And yet they're still opposing Jesus. They're still of the spirit that killed the prophets. 
what we see with the Pharisees and, and the Word of God is that while they affirmed it in broad strokes and had the correct doctrines, when it came to personal application to their own lives, they played games with it. They didn't submit to the Word of God in an open and honest way. They twisted it, they turned it, they changed it here and there. There's not this humble submission. This is the way James says we're supposed to respond to the Word of God. He says, Lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. No, turn away from things that you're holding on into your life, uh, areas where you're not really following God. And he says, Receive with meekness the implanted Word. Okay? Receive with meekness the implanted Word which is able to save your souls. The way God works to save us, bringing us to faith in Christ, is by the Word, His Word being implanted in us. It comes in us. And it works like leaven, like a good leaven. Okay? And it's, that's how God works to save us. But there's a certain attitude that's required for this implanted Word to bear its proper fruit. And that is an attitude of meekness, where we don't set ourselves over it, we set it over us. We place ourselves beneath it. It's not for us to go to the Word of God and talk about what we like or what we don't like or, you know, and twist and turn it that way and play all these games. And the Pharisees were very sophisticated and they were very intellectual sounding and make it all sound very reasonable. But the bottom line is they're not submitting underneath the Word of God. And that then brings us to the fifth and final uh, characteristic connecting these two groups at a deeper level, and that is covenant presumption. Covenant presumption. What covenant co presumption means is this. They took comfort in their religious credentials rather than, act, than actually responding to God. They're taking comfort in their religious credentials. Well, their religious credentials at that time was that we're Abraham's children. We're Abraham's heirs. We have the blood of Abraham in our veins. We're circumcised like he is. Okay? And furthermore, we're the leaders. And we're the good guys. Now, John the Baptist, when he saw Sadducees and Pharisees coming to them, he calls them a bunch of a brood of vipers. He calls them a bag of snakes because they play games with God's Word. And he says this to them, don't think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. He says, don't think to say that because he knows they're saying that. He knows they're saying that. They're relying and trusting in their religious credentials instead of responding to God right now, which is what a disciple does. You don't just respond to God once, and then that's done. You respond to God all the time. You respond to God every day. Life is a whole response to God in everything that we do. And he knows they're saying, we have Abraham as our father. John tells them to repent and furthermore bring forth fruit. There's this fruit concept again. Bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. Because he knew that relying on your religious credentials 
is antithetical to repentance. It will keep one from repenting. It makes one think, I don't need to repent. It makes one think when John preaches or Jesus preaches, do they know who I am? They don't know who I am. I'm a son of Abraham. And I'm a leader of the evangelical movement of my own day. I don't need to repent. Well, repentance, we have to remember this. Repentance is simply turning to God. Turning to God, that's what repentance is. It, it means to turn around because we get to where we're not facing toward God. We're facing somewhere else. Repentance just means wherever you're facing, turn to God. And that's something, again, you don't just do it once. It's something you do every day. You may have to do it multiple times a day. You're just turning toward God. We're always supposed to be turning toward God. And that's what repentance is. But the, their way of thinking, of, re, of resting on their religious credentials, keeps them from thinking in that way. They think, I'm in, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm good, and my status is good, I've got my credentials. Leave me alone, here's my badge. No, they need to respond. They need to turn to God, and that's what John and Jesus tells them. So what they're basically saying by relying on their religious credentials is we don't need to repent. Now, what does that look like today? What that looks like today is we go, well, I'm an evangelical. I've been a Christian this long. Or I grew up in a Christian family. Or I'm reformed. Or I've been around, you know, a really good Bible teaching and understanding. I'm among those in America who have the most insight into the Word of God. We're the, we're the really good guys who really get it. Everybody should be listening to us. All of these kind of thoughts, and even though if they're not articulated, or I went to a really good uh, Bible school or got a really good Christian education, which, hey, all these things are good. All these things are good. But don't turn something good into something bad by resting on your religious credentials. Okay, that's what it would look like in our day. We want to say, okay, let all those good things be good, which means that we get it. And if we get it, what that means is we get the fact that we're always supposed to be turning toward God. We're always supposed to be receiving the word with meekness and letting it have its way with us instead of us having our way with it, okay? It means that. That means that we don't deceive ourselves about what's going on in our hearts, that we're alert for stubbornness and hardness. It means that we do not make an idol out of seeking glory from other people, from our own circles or from others out there, it means that we cultivate the attitude of John the Baptist. Jesus must increase and I must decrease. Now that doesn't mean that we come up with phony shows of humility. Phony shows of false humility. You know, I'm, I'm just going to wear torn up old jeans all the time and a tattered shirt and I'm not going to take care of myself. So everybody can see how humble I am. Well, no, everybody would be seeing how proud I am. I'm so proud of my humility. And I want everybody to see it. 
and I want to receive a claim from how humble I am. That's not humility. C.S. Lewis said, if you ever met somebody who is truly humble, you probably wouldn't think a whole lot about them, except for the fact that they seem to be a really uh, kind person who seems genuinely interested in you. He said that's what would stand out about that person, is being genuinely humble. So these are the things that we need to take to heart so that we don't end up like the Pharisees, self-deceived, having the right doctrines, but being a people that has a stubbornness and a hardness that is beginning to produce in us the same kind of spirit which opposed Jesus and opposed the prophets. And so I commend all of these things to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.